Welcome to episode 118 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Erin Wing. Erin is the Deputy Director of Investigations at Animal Outlook, a national animal advocacy nonprofit organization. Erin was an undercover investigator for two years. She left the field after her last investigation at the Dick Van Dam Dairy in California, where she saw cruelty, abuse, and suffering every day. Through her new position with Animal Outlook, Erin works closely with investigators, providing support and resources for their work. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 117 others. Don't forget to work through that back catalogue if you've found us recently. Every person who reviews and rates or shares our podcast with a few friends helps us nudge more people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates, or just search for the word sentientism on your favorite social media platform. You'll be made welcome in all of our global online communities. They're growing every week and are open to anyone interested, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Aaron. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? Yeah, really good. Really good. Well, it's nice to have a sunny Portland connected to sunny London. It's probably a rare occurrence when we get both, but yeah. Yeah, I think it's the perfect setting for this uh, discussion. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, it's been um, uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you because I've followed your work for a while, so it's great to get the chance to have a conversation. Um, and it's an honor as well to have you as a a subscriber and a listener and a watcher to some of the conversations I've done so far. So you know this already, but it's a series of conversations about what I think of as the two deepest philosophical questions, what's real and what and who matters. And I have a clear agenda here, which I'm not hiding, given the name of the podcast, because I'm trying to popularize and develop this really simple pluralistic worldview called sentientism, which says that when it comes to thinking about what's real and how and what to believe. We should take a naturalistic approach using evidence and reason. And when it comes to who and what matters, the clue is in the name. We should have moral consideration and compassion for every sentient being. So any being has the capacity to suffer or flourish in simple terms. But um, I have the privilege of talking in these conversations to an amazing, diverse range of minds, some of whom agree with sentientism and some of whom don't. So it will be great to yeah, explore your own philosophical journey and see what you think of the idea and um, how well it matches to yours. Uh, but before we get into those big questions, how would you best introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Erin Wing. I am the Deputy Director of Investigations at Animal Outlook, which is a national nonprofit animal advocacy organization dedicated to ending the exploitation of farmed animals in the United States. So I was also a undercover investigator for about two years before I stepped into this role that I'm in currently. And uh, during the course of those two years, I conducted four different undercover investigations into a couple of different sectors in the animal agriculture industry. Yeah, thank you. And your insights are, um, I, I'm not sure it's possible to summarize them, but a combination of shock and awe. And um, yeah, I have deep respect for um what you've done but again we'll dig back into that later in the conversation when we come to talk about the future and driving change and i think you have a particularly unique insight into the nature of the animal industry so yeah it'll be good to dig into that um but before we come on to those questions let's go to these philosophical 
foundations, if you like. So the first question really is what's real? So for many of my guests, that's a story about whether they grew up in a more religious or a supernatural or mystical context in terms of family and society, or one that was maybe more scientifically minded, more naturalistic, and how their philosophy has changed over time, if it has. So yeah, it'd be fascinating to know your story on uh, epistemology, really, and how you think about uh, the universe and reality and what to believe. Right. Well, I was brought up very religious, Christian, and I think that is sort of the more normal expected background for um, any individual who's a person of color, who is growing up in this country, where uh, they're normally, most of the time, uh, you'll grow up in a family that is uh, sort of Christian, religious, go to church every Sunday, um, that type of thing. So when I was younger, that was my mindset. And that was how I set sort of my moral standards based on what was in the Bible, what was in that book and what was taught in churches when I went on Sundays with my family and then whatever moral teachings I received from my parents were directly pulled from those sources. Yeah. So that was how I formed that sort of idea of the way that I should walk through this world and the way that I should treat others and having that ultimate goal of if you do all these things and was that the golden rule do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That was something that I actually really identified and connected with. And that was something I latched onto and that sort of informed. And I think was like a teaser for the mindset I would end up developing um, now. So what what variety of Christianity was it? I don't, I'm not that familiar with uh, the specifics. I just know Christian, just go to church every Sunday, that type of thing, wear your Sunday best. Uh, that was how I grew up. So I'm not entirely familiar with with the, the specifics, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, no problem. And, and um, so you've already talked about how that, if you like, set the seed and the grounding for some of your moral thinking, which is we'll come on to in the second question as well. Um, how did you feel about the um, the belief aspects of that as well? Um, uh, did that feel like an important part of um, uh, the community and the belief system? Was the belief in a deity and the other things that come with that? and um, uh, Or was it more focused on the moral side that you, you felt the influence? I felt the influence definitely from the moral side simply because I was more invested and interested in the aspects of religion that influence people to be good to others yeah. in a variety of different ways. I think there were was definitely a point in my life where I started to question uh, whether that was as effective to sort of base the way that you treat others on standards that are established within that religious context because there always seem to be some exclusions. There always seem to be some conditions. And for me, I just liked the simplicity of that golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And others encompassed everyone, whether they be humans, um, whether they be animals or children, women, men, everyone, regardless of what their sexuality might be, their 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 backgrounds, 
or or whatever they identified as, et cetera. It just I just took it as other. Yeah. Others meaning everyone. Yeah. So, so you like the golden I, rule, but without exceptions. Yeah. Yeah, that was where I most, you know, connected to. Yeah. And have you maintained the um that Christianity through your life? Would you describe yourself as a Christian now? Do you No, I wouldn't. Um, yeah. I would just describe myself as someone who just wants to make the world a better place for everyone in it. Yeah. And was that a conscious decision to, if you like, leave Christianity or is it just something that's faded away a little bit or how's that transition, that process worked? Because for some people, it's, it is just a fading. It's almost unremarkable. For other people, you know, it can be quite a traumatic thing to work through psychologically, socially, and difficulties with family and so on. Was that how... How did that process work for you? Yes, well, it's interesting, and it's a really great question because I haven't really actually thought about it. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting to know that for some people it has been different. And I think maybe a little bit of both, but more so uh, the just sort of gradual fading. And that was something that was sort of natural as I got older, I started questioning things more. And I re remember I would have so many, not arguments, but really lively discussions with my mother, who is very much religious. And I would just ask these questions about, well, there's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament. Well, why is there a New Testament if the the word of God is supposed to be like set in stone absolutely right no no like wrongs there and then we would just go back and forth on that and yeah. Yeah. it was always something where she encouraged me to ask these questions and she we would have these sort of I would I would make jokes and then she would you know laugh about it too and it was it was never something where I I wasn't allowed to ask questions and I think that was what ended up making sort of a household that was sort of more open to me expressing myself in a variety of different ways and coming to my own conclusions, which I'm grateful for. Yeah. Yeah. That's impressive. So even though it was deeply important for her and she was totally convinced, she still gave you that space to ask the questions and would engage with, with you about it. And one of the other things I find interesting when some, quite a few of my guests have a re religious worldview, most of them are sort of naturalistic, maybe atheist or agnostic, but some, some of them have a religious worldview. And I, I find it interesting you know, what's the basis for that? So practically for most of them, it's just because that's what they grew up with. You know, that it's quite rare that people actually choose a religion. Normally it's just, well, that's what my parents told me and that's what the community defined as a default. So I never chose it. I just grew up in it. But then as people think things through, there's at least a couple of paths. One is they say, well, this is an article of faith for me. You know, I, I choose to believe it. I'm not really that interested in whether there's a rationale or logic or evidence for this thing, it's it's faith, and there's there's some pride in that as well. It's almost a an independent commitment, if you like. Whereas for other people, they will say, "Well, no, Jamie, actually, I'm a naturalist too. You know, I use evidence and reason to work out what to believe, and it's led me to believe that there is a deity and Jesus Christ was His Son, and that the Bible is the Word of God." And so, did you do you get a sense from your conversations with your mum about whether she was a it's just faith or whether she thought it was actually a logical you know, thing, set of things to believe. Yes, definitely for her, it was faith-based. Yeah. So she just had to believe, and that is what keeps her going. I remember having a conversation with someone who was also not religious at some point in my life later on, um, maybe 
four, five, six years ago, where we were talking about sort of our religious views and and the fact that we were both non-religious. And I, my opinion on it is that I'm I'm fine with not believing in a specific deity, and I can carry my life just fine that way. And it's also okay for my mom to have that belief system as well, because that's what keeps her going. That's what makes her happy. As yeah. long as she's not hurting anyone, of course, I, I, I am happy that she has that to carry her through life. And that, that motivates her to not only be a better person, but also better herself. And, and it gives her sort of this motivation to, to enjoy life and continue on and, yeah, and et cetera. A sense so, of meaning and purpose. and Yeah. yeah. And for some people, they they need that or they want that in their lives, and that's great for them. As long as no one's being hurt by it, um, I'm I'm all for it. For yeah. everyone having their specific things that keep them going. Yeah, and the exploration and the questions you were, um, and I'm digging back into your childhood here, so it's a long way back to remember. But um, were your com- questions and challenges with your mum? Um, more about the facts and the evidence and the reason and you know the inconsistencies in the Bible and this doesn't seem like it's likely to be true. Was it that type of stuff, or was it more about some of the ethical problems you hinted that there were exclusions or conditions to this universal compassion? That um, I mean, for for me, for one example, I guess the, probably the most central example that is relevant to many religions is, you know, I just don't see how the concept of creating a hell where you would torture, you know, many billions of um, essentially innocent people for eternity how in any way that can be consistent with a compassionate god so that was you know one of the things i as a teenager was thinking hold on so, so there was the evidence stuff but there was also the hold on this ethics just doesn't feel intuitively right to me Did, were you questioning in both areas or more one or the other or? i think it was probably definitely both just yeah. on either side of it I, it didn't really match up to me and when you mentioned the the creation of this place where a lot of people would suffer if uh, they, you know, transitioned into the afterlife. My question was, does that place even exist? Um, How do we know that it exists? And that was sort of the way that I questioned sort of the functionality of it. And then there was also the exclusions that really troubled me as well, where I, I felt as though and and later on in life, it really came to a head for me because I'm an individual who has managed to fall into almost every marginalized um, community somehow. I'm uh, someone who is part of the LGBTQ plus community, and I'm also someone who is a minority and, and et cetera. So once I had that realization that I fell into so many of those categories that potentially might be excluded from you know salvation, that was something where I felt as though, well, am I a bad person for something that I can't control? Yeah. Um, so there's the other thing about it that sort of made me question as well. Yeah, you're ticking so many of the wrong boxes from a sort of conservative yeah. Christian worldview. That, <laughs> yeah, it sort of brings it to a, you know a pretty clear point, doesn't it? So yeah, thank you. Um, so how would you describe the, your how you think about reality and epistemology now? Are you because some people who've moved away from a formal religion like me become quite a sort of boring naturalistic atheist if you like or probably maybe an extreme agnostic i just think it's vanishingly unlikely there's a god um so some people follow that sort of classical path other people um will 
hold on to some aspects of a supernatural worldview and they might describe themselves as spiritual but not religious or find some other aspect of the, the mystical or something that goes beyond the natural. How would you describe your worldview now? Are you a sort of boring naturalist like me or um, is there some still some aspect of the supernatural that just doesn't fit with Christianity in your way of thinking? Well, I would probably say maybe some aspect of the supernatural. How was I able to get through two years of undercover investigations and, you know, get yeah. out and and not be harmed or, or anything like that? So I had quite a bit of luck and maybe it has to do with the supernatural. But also, I think, you know, for me, I've always categorized myself as sort of agnostic because I don't know for sure. And I could be proven wrong, you know, 50 years from now, there could be some proof that is actually uh, factual. And it's, it's something that I can actually interact with and see. And, you know, that could happen. And yeah. I've never ruled anything out. I've never said, you know, I know 100% unequivocally that this is true, that this is the fact, unless it's something that absolutely can't be disputed. Yeah. So. I really That's like that way of thinking. And I'm, a, I'm very much an amateur philosopher, but it, it, some people say that there's almost two different sorts of naturalism. There's the naturalism that says only the natural world exists and the supernatural world, there is no such thing. Um, there's another naturalism, which is more about the method and how we go about forming beliefs. And I think you just described it really well, which is, you know, if there's evidence there, then, I'm, you know, then I'll believe that it's more likely. And if there isn't evidence there, then I won't. Um, and I, 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 I actually think that sort of method of naturalism is more important than whether there's the natural or the supernatural. Um, because I think that's the process of you know, using evidence and reason in an honest way. We're always biased, but trying to acknowledge our biases and try and find our way through. And instead of saying, you know, this is true and this is false, doing what you described and said, look, there's a degree of credence or probability, but if the evidence changes, I'll change my mind. And to my, you know, that's the heart of a naturalistic way of thinking. So I think it's quite, I think it's, entirely consistent with that to say well who knows the supernatural there might be things that could exist a deity could exist the magic could exist you know these things could exist but i won't believe in them until there's some decent evidence presented to me um it's an entirely coherent way of thinking and it's nice to have that sort of humility as well that you you know quite often um atheists and some people with a scientific worldview can come across as you know more dogmatic than they should be you know they're totally confident that a certain thing is the case when actually, you know, who knows, we should always be open to new evidence. So, yeah, yeah, thank you. I definitely try to maintain that humility throughout my life in all types of things because I never know. And I don't like to keep myself in sort of like an echo chamber. I know that can be difficult nowadays, especially online with social media, but I try to keep myself open to a couple of different, you know, opinions or whatnot. And then as soon as I know that that's not true, then, you know, I, I have my opinion that I can form and, and it's based on fact and that's, that's good enough for me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think if you're, if you're only looking at evidence that supports what you want to believe, you're not doing it right. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. But like you say, it's tricky, sometimes tricky to break out those bubbles, but it's important. So, so yeah, thank you. Well, so that's, that I guess closes out that sort of what's real question. I think we probably share a sort of naturalistic approach to thinking about what's real and what isn't real. Um, but you've demonstrated brilliantly that it's quite hard to separate the what's real and the what matters questions because I think they do tie together quite closely. And in a way, you've already started to answer this second question about what matters because you, you know, of course, there are problems within religious 
moral systems and you talked about some of the exclusions and the conditionality, but you picked up that central golden rule and said, look, this really feels right to me. So is, is that still the essence of um, you know, what matters to you and what ethics and morality mean? Definitely. I think that just carries, that, that holds a lot of the weight of the way that I would like the world to function. Yeah. And that is sort of, it is sort of like a motivator or it explains the motivator that I have behind the work that I do as an animal rights advocate, as someone who you know, has experienced my own share of trauma and hardship and suffering. And knowing at that point in time for that kid that I was and the adult that I am now, I would like for a world where a kid who's like me would be able to live a life where they didn't have to go through those experiences. And if that is the case for that one child, that's going to be, have to be something that we implement, you know, throughout the world in a variety of different cases and a variety of different ways for all living beings. In my opinion, you know, if you have that as your moral standard, then everyone else is going to fall into that under that umbrella of doing for others what you would have done for you. Yeah. And I think it's it's interesting that you've held on to that ethical core, even as you've moved away from a Christian worldview, because I guess one of the things I find frustrating about some of the religious morality is that there's almost an implication that the reason we're being compassionate isn't because we actually care about the others. Ultimately, it's because God commanded us to be compassionate. Um, and I don't think that's how most religious people feel. I, I think most religious people genuinely do feel compassion. They're not doing it because they were told to. But there's still something slightly odd about, you know, the, the whole point of this really is ultimately compliance with God, not a fundamental compassion. And there's stories like, um, you know, Abraham and Isaac, which sort of bring that to the fore, where the implication of the message seems to me to be, you know, if God tells you to do something really awful to someone you love, you obedience to God wins. And I'm like, that doesn't feel right. Um, so in a way, you kept that, you know, ethical core that you learned through a Christian worldview, but you've lost this concern about whether you're doing it for, you know, obedience to a deity. You're just doing it because of a genuine compassion and concern for, for others instead, which I think makes it more powerful and more you know, better grounded than one you're doing just because you t you were told to. I don't know if that resonates at all, but yeah, definitely it does because I I feel as though I I completely connect with what you just said. The fact that people should be doing good things just because it is the good and the right thing to do, and not just because they're trying to get into some exclusive place that's heaven or yeah. or whatnot or There's whatever it is for other people, <laughs> yeah, or or something like that, or it, essentially, if you're doing it for those reasons, then you are technically still in it for yourself. And I think the world would do better if it was more of a selfless place. And I think nowadays what we're seeing is a lot of suffering is being uh, executed on a lot of people who are vulnerable, a lot of, and people, animals falling under that umbrella of the term people for me. I, I think a lot of these things are happening because of people acting in their own best self-interests. And that's the sort of thing that I cannot identify with. So I understand that a lot of people, you know, turn to religion to sort of guide them through 
either hard times or if that's something that is really very much ingrained in their culture, um, that's something that is valid as well. But we also have to ask these questions, you know, why are we doing these things that we're doing? And then when that person isn't holding themselves to that standard, what do they think of themselves? And is there sort of like a self-destructive um, idea or concept that arises within the being that is ascribing to that religion? And is that harmful to the individual as well? So yeah, yeah. yeah it's, there's really good questions <laughs> yeah. to ask. Yeah, thank you. You're clear that the golden rule and this compassion for others was a core part of the Christian worldview that you were brought up with. You've also hinted that you know, it was part of your own experience of suffering in difficult times and oppression was one of the sources for that compassion. How did that ethic develop in your way of thinking? And how did it um, expand to include non-humans? Because I think almost everyone feels some sort of compassion, you know, if it's not for their immediate family or um, certain subgroups of humans, people, uh, you know, everyone's got some compassion. But the critical question is, who warrants it and how far does that moral scope go? And it sounds like you very early on just intuitively included sentient animals in that scope. Was it something that was there from day one and, or how did it develop? And, and why do you think you came to that view? It was something that was there from day one, I believe. I've always sort of had this connection with animals and Growing up in the environment that I was in, I did not see a lot of kindness that people would show me and people meaning human animals. I would frequently be in those situations and there was always some form of expectation there. There was the expectation that I had to do a specific thing in order to receive uh, kindness or compassion or the individual expected me to you know, fall under some guideline in order yeah. to be worthy of that, right? And So it's transactional are, and you have to sort of fit in a box and yeah, and it's, do what it's you're told. And, yeah. In line with, you know, religious conditions as well, right? So that was sort of the household that I grew up in. And whenever I came across a, a non-human animal, I never felt that there was any expectation there. They just live and they survive in this world and they take it day by day and there are no conditions to receive affection from them it's just they automatically give it or they might be cautious but in most cases i could always connect with them and experience some kind of kindness or compassion where there were no expectations there it was just given and received in kind and that was those were sort of the purest connections that I could make. And I think it just speaks to animals in general, where they have that mindset where there's, they, they don't put themselves in these boxes. They're just living. They're just existing, yeah. which is pretty awesome. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's almost, it, it's it sometimes feels like it's the state that many humans are trying to achieve, where it's just genuine and natural and flowing. And, you know, there's, there's not too many annoying uh, noisy internal voices in the background, you know, nagging away at you. It's, a, it's just a different mode of existence. And, and I'm sure there's, you know, we have a lot in common. I'm sure they have their own anxieties and their own worries too. But um, it feels like that the way you engage with non-human animals just sets such a stark contrast against what you were finding from some of the other humans uh, around you too. So there's that sense of reassurance and immediacy of connection in a, 
genuine unconditional compassion from them. And so, and your sense was just you reciprocated that. Yes, I clearly remember there was one point in my life when I was really young and I was walking to school one day and every time I'd walk by this this particular house, there was a huge fence that was sort of really blocked off. You couldn't really see what was on the other side, but you could always hear a dog and they sounded like a really big dog barking, just sounding sort of scary. But I was always really curious about who was on the other side of that fence. So one day I was walking to school and I just happened to put my hand against the side, the, the, the fence. And instead of being mauled or something horrible happening, losing fingers, I just felt a wet nose and breathing and just having that interaction with that individual. And in, I, I didn't feel any type of fear there. I just felt like this is someone I'm saying hello to. I've never seen them before, but I've always been curious about them. And it turns out they're not as scary and horrible as some people believed that they were. So that was something that I remember. Yeah, I like it. And were most of your experiences with non-human animals like that? Was it neighborhood or did you have companion animals or did you have any experience of you know, farms at that time, which, which animals did you build relationships with? All kinds of animals, I think. Uh, most of the time, uh, those who fall under the umbrella term of companion animals, cats, dogs, and I would always encounter these situations where I would be in a position to act as someone who would be a rescuer in some cases. Um, there was this storm one day and and there were these these stray kittens in a bucket and and the bucket was turned up so that the the rain water was going into it so they would have slowly drowned to death if i hadn't run out in the thunderstorm as a little little girl and and taken them in and a stray dog one time was loose in our neighborhood and then the the neighborhood kids were were um sort of harassing this dog and I was the one who stepped in because I felt some type of compassion for them and I you know took them in and that there were always these cases where I would be in the position to be sort of the rescuer and I think that that um eventually influenced me to become an undercover investigator yeah, at some point we can see we can see your path the early steps yeah um and um one of the Big challenges, of course, in this space is food, because I think many young people would have some sort of similar experiences with non-human animals where they did develop a very natural affinity, a uh, sense of relationship, a sense of compassion. But at some point, there's a recognition of you know what's on the family dinner plate, um, and that can be something that leads to just denial or avoidance of the, of the topic or cognitive dissonance or you know the full range of human biases and uh, psychology and defenses come into uh, play. They certainly did with me for you know many decades. So, how did that aspect of your concern for non-humans play out? How early did that start to factor in, and how did you work through that transition? Right, the first time that that happened to me was actually when I watched my first documentary that was going through sort of the food system, and. That was also where undercover investigations footage was shown. And I was 
the first time that I saw it, I immediately felt horrified. And I exposed, I always exposed myself to things like that when I was really young. Can't explain why. I still do it to this day. I expose myself to many different things that a lot of people would shy away from. How old were you, do you, do you think, when you saw the footage for the first time? I think I was maybe 14 or 13 years old. Um, I think that's probably the case, 13 or 14. And I just jumped right into it. And um, yeah, so when I did see that, I just felt horrible. And I, I felt like this is an awful thing that is happening. And then when I went after watching that documentary and I sat down with my family and we were eating the you know, carcass of a, a chicken, I could feel like there was that contradiction there. Like, why am I eating this? Why? And eventually... And I think this happens to most people that feeling fades away because you get back into your routine, your day to day, you don't see it anymore. And yeah. I, and, and you see everything that normalizes it. And that's always at the forefront. And then your parents normalize it or your, your community normalizes it. And it's not something that people think about because a lot of the time, especially for my community, there were so many other problems that were going on that yeah. needed more attention or something like that. So Eventually, for me, it faded away, but I would always go back to those documentaries. Every time a new one came out, I would go and watch it, feel this, go through the same situation, the same feelings of guilt and horror and feeling like I needed to do something, but not really knowing exactly how to go about doing those things. And I think that's where, you know, animal advocacy organizations or vegan organizations come into play, where they, you know, give those guidelines and those step-by-step paths that you can take to, you know, live a different life and take up a different lifestyle that doesn't contribute to that suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, a difficult dynamic, but I think one we'll talk about a little bit more when we talk about the future, because, you know, that the whole purpose of the industry is to try and keep that stuff hidden from us. And as consumers, we don't want to see it either generally. So it's a sort of strange situation where both sides are deliberately trying to you know hide the reality from each other for their for their own purposes so, um yeah it's strange um so what was the process you know at what point did it stick for you where you you know stopped going back to the chicken and where you finally you know made made the made changes in your own life right this is a story that i usually tell pretty often because this is what i try to do to motivate any individuals who are sort of falling into the line of vegan activist or vegan advocate who might be a volunteer or someone who's just vegan and existing in this world and talking to other people about it because it is effective and it does make a difference. So the the first time that it really stuck with me was because I had my first interactions with someone who was vegan and I was talking to them and I was telling them, this is the way that I would like for the world to be one day because I went through so much suffering and so many different experiences that were potential that were you know traumatic for me and I felt like there there has to be some type of alternative to that and that's the type of world that I want to contribute to and that's when I was challenged there 
by that vegan friend and they said, okay, well, you have all of these worldviews and the, and these opinions on the way that the world should be, but you're not vegan. And that was sort of like a call out for me where I had always had these feelings like I should definitely be vegan because I have these reactions to the documentaries and I've, I, I have connections with the animals, but for some reason I didn't take that step. And it was more so for me, I considered it to be like a selfish thing that I just would push it back to the back of my mind. So at that point I felt compelled to actually make a difference in my lifestyle and not contribute to that suffering. If I want to see a world where there are no people who have to be exploited or, or whatnot, that would be something that I would have to do as an individual to help contribute to that world. So, um, to that future. So that was when I decided to sort of transition to vegetarianism. I kept watching the documentaries. I kept watching the investigations footage. And then I had that shift of, well, maybe I can do undercover investigations for an animal advocacy organization and contribute in that way. And I felt that was where I would be most effective. And then once the day I became an undercover investigator, that was the day that I became vegan. Yeah. And did you find it difficult practically or socially once you'd made that switch? Or was it just, think, you know, I'm done, light bulb, you know, move on? Once I made the switch to veganism, it was very easy because I was undercover and I was out in the middle of nowhere most of the time. Nobody was going to criticize me <laughs> yeah. for that. Yeah. Um, but when I transitioned to vegetarianism, it was definitely sort of a thing that I was struggling with because I didn't really know what to eat and I am no cook by any means so yeah, me I neither, was yeah. living off the bare minimum and I would go to the supermarket I would try to look into in the vegan aisle and I would just grab whatever I could afford and also the price factor was something that for someone who is in my position economically and as someone who was primarily most of the time living in low-income communities and struggling to get by, uh, I, I felt like that was sort of a really huge hurdle for me to figure out what to eat, what I could afford in order to stick and adhere to that lifestyle. And eventually once I transitioned to veganism, I realized that there are a lot of easier ways to do that. And it's not always, it doesn't always have to be sort of the things that are branded as vegan, that you turn to and purchase, it can be, you know, beans or rice or things that you eat every day anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, but you mentioned two important things there. One was the, you know, knowing someone who's vegan and, and that sort of challenge and having at least someone else around you who's been on that journey to help. And the other thing is just the practical knowledge of, you know, how, how to do these things. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. As so, long as people know that it's not, it's not as difficult as it might seem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so we've talked about who gets to matter there. And um, in, a, in a short, you know, I guess caring about all animals is a good shorthand for me, but I quite like the idea of zeroing on, you know, on this idea of sentience, just because I think that's ultimately what matters. I don't care about an animal just because we've classified it as an animal. I care about them because they have the capacity to suffer and it's that suffering and the flourishing I care about. Um, so is that where you'd set your boundary of compassion now? Would you say it is all animals or all sentient beings? Or um, what do you think about even going beyond sentience to um, having compassion for things that can't suffer like plants or trees or rocks or rivers or environments or ecosystems? Because some people would criticize sentientism and say, look, you're not going far enough. 
you're almost discriminating against, you know, the biosphere and ecosphere and things that don't suffer. Yeah, I think a lot of detractors would also turn to that. Well, I mean, you're vegan, but what about all the plants, et cetera, and you're killing them? And for me, I think blocking out all the noise. I love nature and I would like for it to be preserved. I think that's really important. And I don't know, I'm a tree hugger. I go out hiking and I interact with the plant life around me. I touch the leaves. I will stop and hug a tree every now and then because I I recognize that they they do have this ability to to try to survive. And I think every thing that is living in some capacity does do that. So for me, I think, you know, having that importance and placing that importance on nature and plant life is is something that we should be doing as a society, for sure. And I think what we have to do is is sort of look at what we have proven to, to contain sentience. That is absolutely important yeah. because... A lot of people, and specifically the animal agriculture industry, especially, will have and try to convince people that these uh, non-human animals do not feel any type of pain. They don't have the capacity to suffer because it's easier to think of them as products, as just food. Yeah. And I remember watching this this one, and this is just how prevalent that mindset is um, throughout the world that we live in. I remember watching this um this this uh, series on Netflix where a comedian was walking with his daughter into a, a bodega or like a, a corner store and there were some live lobster in a tank and as the comedian's walking through the, the little store his daughter just points at the tank and says somebody needs to help them look at them they're they need to be helped or, or something like that and and the comedian was just frustrated and just trying to pull his daughter along. And then eventually he stops and he says, that's not people, that's food. And then he takes her in and they continue walking. So that just goes to show like how prevalent that mindset is and then how dangerous it is because we're always met with these contradictions that animals do have the capacity to suffer and feel pain and feel joy and, and happiness and all those different things and, and emotions that we normally attribute it just to ourselves. And it's it's really important to recognize that and to be aware and cognizant of that and have that inform the way that we, you know, treat them as well because you you really get into some tricky situations when you're constantly telling yourself this this being is not capable of feeling pain while they are screaming in pain and you're doing something to them. That's I can't even imagine being in that that type of position. But a lot of people are unfortunately yeah, in this they world. Are. They are. It's amazing. And um, the episode I've just released was with uh, Mark Solms, who's done amazing work on neurology and understanding the brain and he's absolutely clear that the the basis of our sentience probably evolved 600 million years ago and is extremely widespread across the animal kingdom you know certainly all vertebrates probably most many of the invertebrates as well and he just sees it as scientifically so well grounded that it's you know we can have enormous confidence in it he, he said there are even scientists, you know, who even study animal behavior and animal psychology who still maintain that 
that they can't really experience suffering in the same way as human animals can. It's genuinely bizarre. Uh, it's a sort of strange, deep-seated, anthropocentric arrogance. And, and of, of course, when it comes to the animal agriculture industry, a very self-serving um, lie that people like to believe. And that's, that's quite an interesting example. As we come to talk about uh, you know, how can we make a better future for all sentient beings, part of my rationale behind this idea of sentientism combining both a naturalistic approach that focuses on beliefs and credence and a compassion that's grounded in sentience and a sentiocentric compassion is because I think we need both. So when many people look at the animal agriculture industries, for example, and you know, you or I might look at that and go, look, how can that exist? Because surely it's a failure of compassion. Surely it's because humans just don't care about these uh, you know, billions or trillions of animals in farms and being fished. It's a failure of compassion. It's an ethical problem. And that's part of it, but that's not all of it. I think just as big a problem, maybe even bigger, is that people believe fabrications that then enable them to carry on doing what they're doing. So they will believe you know, animals can't suffer. They will believe that farming can be humane. They can f- believe that animals don't grieve or you know, aren't stressed by seeing what's happening to their family and group members. So it's, so it's a combination of you know, false beliefs and fabrications as well as failures of compassion. And we need to address them both. But, um, and what you laid out there was a great example of that. You know, if people genuinely believe or kid themselves they believe that animals can't suffer. You know, it makes makes their life much easier because, yeah, again, they don't need to change, and us humans love having excuses not to change. Yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> so let's come on to that final, yeah, another crazily big question about how do we think about the future? Because I think you know, you and I roughly share a sort of naturalistic way of thinking. We share this sentiocentric compassion that we care about all sentient beings. Um, but most humans on the planet disagree with this in some shape or form because either they hold to some sort of explicitly supernatural beliefs and their compassion. While I think most humans would say, look, I do care about animal suffering, in practical terms, it's extremely constrained. You know, so there are many humans that constrain their compassion even within humans, and we know the horrible problems that leads to in terms of intrahuman ethics. Um, but within the non-human animals space, you know, it's, it's equally as egregious in that people will care about their own companion animals and some charismatic wild animals, but will in practical terms exclude all of the other wild animals and certainly all animals and farms from practical moral consideration. So we're in this weird situation where I think, you know, our stance seems probably quite strong and self-evident to us, but the way the world operates at the moment and the way humanity operates is very, very different. So how does that leave you thinking about what sort of future we might be able to get to and how can we get there? And you can talk about intrahuman ethics. Of course, the focus of your work is on the horrific problem of animal agriculture as well, so we can spend some time there. But how do you think in general terms about a better, what a better future might look like and how we can get there? Right. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the way that we attempt to understand other people's journey to really sort of separating themselves from all the propaganda that they've had to listen to throughout their entire lives. And that stems from religious, you know, context where, I mean, for for my aunt, when I told her about the things that I had witnessed as an undercover investigator, and I, I told her all these things, 
after the fact, once that when she was aware of all of that information, her counter to that was, well, it doesn't say in the Bible for the Christian Bible um, that man has dominion over animals. And that was something that she brought up. So that's in the religious context. And then, like I explained earlier, we have the advertisements, the the general culture within our society that that says that it is okay to consume animals because they're, you know, food or they are objects and you don't really need to feel compassion for them because they're serving, you know, the purpose of feeding the the more dominant population yeah. on the planet, right? The and apex then predator. You have Right. <laughs> uh, my always my counter to that is that okay, let's let's see how the apex predator does one on one with an actual apex predator <laughs> yeah. with no tools, no nothing. I yeah. don't think that would go very well. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's that, and then there's also the the lies that are put forth by the animal agriculture industry that profits from all of this these beliefs that people may have and you have all of this that people have to fight against to break out of. And then you have the culture as well within their community, within their you know family unit, their family structure. So you have all of these ways that people are influenced and you have to understand that it can be really hard for people to break out of that. But the best thing that we can do is have that understanding, but also don't, you know, compromise as well. And, and to absolutely, you know, uh, stay strong in your stance on, on, on what your belief is, because that's what these non-human animals are sort of relying upon and waiting for us to do. Right. I think that for me personally, I feel as though they are the, the animals that I've come across are incredibly just these resilient beings that I would not be able to endure what they endure on a daily basis, but they do. And somehow they continue to survive day after day in the conditions that they're in and with the exploitation that they experience. And I feel as though they are waiting for us as, you know, human animals to come to that conclusion, to, to come to that realization that this is wrong and we shouldn't be doing these things to them. And that requires a lot of you know, back and forth conversations that requires a lot of organizations to be working towards this common goal of however we go about doing this. But it's it's really a, a way of deep. It's it's a matter of deep programming a lot yeah. of the population to to sort of break out of that mindset. And there are a variety of different ways that we have to do that. But I think at the basis of it, it is that understanding of why people do the things that they do why they have this essential belief system and how can we support their transition away from that? And I think that's something that we at Animal Outlook have sort of honed in on with our farm transitions program as well, that we, we recognize that there are farmers who this is their livelihood. So that is why they are locked in. And that, that is why they are contributing to, you know, the suffering of these living beings where sometimes they don't want to do that. And they don't have a, a way to get out of it. So it's up to us who are already have broken out of that mindset to be able to to recognize that there are some people who are still stuck in it. How can we support them from breaking out of it? And it requires a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of effort. But I think in the end, it is worth it to sort of support everyone and lift everyone up and and fight against, you know, a lot of these these 
corporations and other people who are profiting off of that exploitation to say, you know, we're doing the work that we need to do to make this world a better place, regardless of whether you're okay with, you know, destroying it in the process of what yeah. you're doing. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of focus, obviously, on the consumers, um, you know, who are taking decisions to buy the products from these industries for understandable reasons, because, you know, putting the subsidies to one side, that's frankly where the money comes from, from these industries is largely from individual consumers. So there's a lot of focus on, as you said, that sort of de-indoctrination process of understanding all these powerful cultural and social and psychological forces that led people to think this is normal. And because it's normal, it must be okay, right? So let's carry on. Um, so that's a really interesting area of focus. Um, but as you said, I, I think it's also really interesting to look at the industry itself and you know the firms and the organizations and the farms and the people who run those farms and the people who work on those farms too. And I, I'd love to dig into that idea about the transition part, because I think it's been a bit it's been neglected in the animal advocacy and vegan movements overall historically i think there's been such a focus on persuading the consumer to um change which is still important but there hasn't been enough focus on looking at the anatomy of the industries themselves and working out how to change in ways that also show compassion to the people whose lives are tied up with them too but before we come on to the transition idea what what role do you think investigations and your amazing work can play in both nudging the industry in a particular direction and also shifting consumer and wider cultural thinking about animal agriculture and what's your experience right, yeah, of the, the reaction to the things you've uncovered oh usually the experiences that either that they uh it's always it always happens i think twofold and on one hand people are horrified by it and they feel guilty for participating in it and they try to figure out what, what they can do in order to not contribute to that. And then on the other hand, there are people who believe that or think that it's faked or that it's, you know, edited in some way. Or it's and a bad apple. It's just a rare... <laughs> Yeah, and for the editing part, I am floored by the people who believe that these places would allow anyone to walk onto the property and just fabricate something on their property. I don't think people would really do that. So it's always absurd when that argument is brought up. But um, in terms of just the the bad apple thing, I think that's also someone who is, if they do make that excuse, that's someone who is really locked in and they don't want to feel like there's nothing else. There's no alternative because that's what they feel in that moment. If there are no just bad apples, there aren't just singular farms that are awful, what do they do? And that's something that they've done for their entire lives. They've consumed animals and that's what their parents did before them and their parents' parents and et cetera. And what do they do? Like, how do they feed their children? And I think that's something that we really have to focus on as well is that, you know, some, some people, are in positions where they have to, you know, struggle with that, you know, cognitive dissonance and and we have to be mindful of that. But when it comes to investigations in particular, I believe that they are powerful because they make people ask these questions, right? Uh, they make people ask whether there are some good farms and then they're open to receiving that information that no there aren't because of this these uh, variety of different factors. And number one being that 
every farm is exploiting an animal, regardless of how large it is, how small it is, whether it's organic or non-organic, et cetera. So that opens up the, the ability to make these conversations and have these conversations with people. And then on the other hand, it, the, it does hold the industry accountable in many cases as well. And when it comes to just how that footage interacts with the industry as a whole, I think it challenges a lot of the the notions and the the propaganda, in my opinion, that's what it is, that is put out and put forth by the industry, where there's that picture of the happy animal grazing on a green pasture, and that's what's placed on the labels. And they don't have to say it explicitly, but that's what's in the advertisements. That's what's on the labels in, in the supermarkets. And that's the the idea that they're they're putting forth for people to believe in. And for people who have never been at these places and they've never grown up in those types of environments, or if they have, they see just all the best parts of it. If there are people who grew up on farms and worked alongside their family, those are the memories that they have that are tied to sort of the behaviors that they're practicing and the the mistreatment that the animals have to go through. That's something that falls by the wayside. So when it comes to investigations footage, it just completely flips it on its head because it's it's what happens when no one's watching and and when no when these places think that no one's watching. And that's where people are at their most natural. They're going to do the things that they do all the time because there's that expectation that, you know, they they can get away with it because it's hidden behind those closed doors. And once investigations blows those doors wide open, the industry then turns and says, you know, that's just the one farm. But how many times can they say that? There's been so many different investigations where all of this cruelty and all of the the mistreatment that the animals have to endure is revealed. And every single time they have the same excuse. I mean, in my opinion, maybe one day they switch it up. But at this point, people have to begin to question, okay, well, if that's the same thing every time, and that's just one farm, if we look at the body of work of investigations, that adds up to a lot of farms. So eventually that that's not going to be a thing that they can turn to. And the more that we have these investigations that happen, the more that we can disprove that theory that this is something that is okay. Because all the time, every single time an investigation comes out, people realize, it, and then the proof is in the visuals and the audio that this is not okay. And it's something that we have to definitely move away from if we're going to progress as a society. Yeah, that cr- transparency is absolutely critical. And I've got so much respect for the work that you and other investigators do, because most consumers don't want to go into these places because they just don't want to know. Um, most people who have genuine compassion for the victims don't want to go into these places because it's horrific to experience those things just through a basic human empathy. And you've made enormous sacrifices at being willing to break through that door and put yourself through some terrible situations bearing witness to um, those victims being harmed for the good of those victims. Um, it's, warrants enormous respect. Um, and when you've been in those situations, um, how do you come to feel about the other people who are working in those farms? Um, is there a sense that these are ordinary people just doing what the industry does? Um, are there other instances where it's explicitly some form of sadistic cruelty? 
and what and how do you feel about the other people working in these environments? Do you see them as perpetrators? Do you see them as also being victims in some sense of the system? How do you how do you think about the other humans in these environments? Right. Well, in my opinion, you could definitely be a victim and a perpetrator. Yeah. Uh, they can definitely, you know, go hand in hand depending on the situation, depending on the individual. And I think most of the time that that might be the case, right? Because when when I look at sort of the perpetrator aspect of it, I look at what environment is being cultivated to allow that behavior to be something that is accepted, right? So if you have an industry that is cultivating an environment that they have these workers who are in these positions and they're constantly being told, you need to move these units in a, an efficient manner and they need to be processed quickly because we have to meet the demands of these consumers and make more money. Obviously, they don't say it in, in, in those terms, but um, essentially, yeah, they're, they're considered, when it comes to referring to them as units of production, that is how they're considered in black and white terms within the industry. So if you have this environment where, you know, that is sort of the mindset and the mentality, and then you have, you insert the standard practice aspect into it, whereas you have normal farming procedures that are done by these workers where they are inflicting pain on these animals anyway, whether it be at a pig farm where they're forced to sort of um, to mutilate these, these piglets, these newborn piglets, cutting off their tails, uh, docking their tails, cutting parts of their ears off and then castrating them without any pain relief. Or if you have dairy farms where they're dehorning or disbudding these young calves that are uh, almost newborn and, and they're taking, you know, hot irons and then they're pressing it into their skulls. And that's a normal practice. Where yeah, they're that is the standard, right? Yeah. Right. If that's sort of the culture that is being established by the industry, then when you're looking at the perpetrators who are going outside of the standard practice by chance and they happen to um, perform an act of cruelty towards one of these animals, you have to ask, okay, well, where's the line? Because they're, they're causing them pain anyway. And that is the culture of the industry. So are they just doing this because they want to or are they doing it because they're in an environment that permits them to just exhibit all the worst parts of human behavior, right? And if you're in that type of situation, then it's normalized and it's it's considered okay. And I wonder if I wonder if that's that's part of what goes on in people's minds is they're thinking, if I'm you know if if I'm if the process and what I'm expected to do and what is in my job description job description is to castrate this piglet without pain relief, if that is normal and expected and standard, then you know, why wouldn't stabbing a cow with a pitchfork also be normal? You know, if I'm consistent, you know, how can I condemn one of those things and not the other? And it, it, it's sort of horrible warped sense. It almost makes sense because that normalization, as you say, comes from the standard aspects of the process, but then applies across, you know, all sorts of other awful behaviors as well. I wonder if that's something that's going on in psychology too. Yeah, it's, it's really sort of sickening the the indoctrination that happens in yeah. farms where you have these individuals who have to sort of numb themselves to 
the screams of these animals, the screams of the piglets, they're processing piglets. They might process 100 piglets a day, who knows, depending on the size of the farm. And every single time, every single piglet is screaming. And if you do that for five years, every single day, 100 piglets, then you can only imagine how you have to sort of fight back against that better nature that tells you that this individual is a living being and they're screaming right in my hands. But the the, the way that the work flows, I have to just keep going. So yeah. that is yeah. sort of what happens in that type of environment. So whenever anyone asks or, or wonders how I feel about the workers, specifically as individuals who I might have documented in some cases committing acts of cruelty towards the animals, I always answer with this type of thing because that's where our focuses need to lie yeah. you need to focus on what who, because the workers aren't cultivating this type of environment so who is yeah. and whoever is needs to be held accountable because essentially we're having these individuals who would outside of the context might be able to form some type of notion that okay, if I cause this animal pain, then they're definitely feeling it. If they're screaming, they're vocalizing, they're definitely feeling it. So maybe that's wrong. And, and putting them in an environment that says, no, that's actually okay. And it's okay because we have to make money off of this. And then also we have to put out this product to consumers who will pay us. And then yeah. we, we keep making money off of it. So that's where I always, you know, put my attention on because I think that's, we, we should definitely be looking at the industry and just the toxic nature of it in, in many ways that, yeah. that needs to be addressed. Yeah, thank you. And it would be good to spend, if you've got a little bit more time, to talk about the transition idea because um, I think that's practically deeply important. But it's also a sort of emotionally impressive thing to do because by definition, we're looking at this thing that we think is horrific and still recognizing that, as you say, even the perpetrators are themselves victims, and we need to have compassion for the people in these systems as well. Um, so I, I think this transition space is super important um, and historically has been neglected. So I'd love to know a little bit more about how you think about transition, partly because sometimes it's the thinking around it can be a little bit naive and wishful thinking on the animal advocate side too. It can be just, you know, why doesn't the rancher just you know, transition to being a sanctuary and start growing hemp and then all the problems are solved. And it, you know, my amateur understanding of it, it's not quite that simple. So how do you think about the transition space and how much progress we can realistically make there and how best to make that happen? I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. And especially with testimonials from workers where or, or farm managers, farm owners that might be contracted to a particular um, animal agriculture industry corporation that have expressed in some cases, it seems like they're in a position of being in indentured servitude. Yeah. So they're con constantly in debt and there's never a way to dig themselves out of it. And locked into it, contracts. It's just, yeah, definitely. And then they're, they're working with these living beings that they have to manipulate their weight. They have to manipulate, you know, and, and, and put them in environments where they're going to get sick, they're going to get injured, they're going to uh, be born with some type of deformities or whatnot, and have to just have them in this environment where they're not, you know, 
thriving. They're maybe surviving and they have to, you know, try to make them survive long enough for them to be slaughtered. And then to have all these other things that they have to worry about. It's just, it's again, a a very toxic way of, you know, making a living. And a lot of farmers have expressed that they they feel like they are being taken advantage of they feel like they are contributing to this type of suffering because again another thing that i'd like to point out as someone who did undercover investigations and interacted with these workers and these farm managers on a daily basis they see these animals every single day and they interact with them every single day so a lot of the time they can form some connections with them And they also can express some type of remorse. And we have heard, you know, stories from farmers who actually feel bad when they have to put down an animal or they have to euthanize an animal, especially on dairy farms, I think, because the animals are a lot larger and they um, and cows have these really amazing, beautiful personalities. So uh, some farmers do feel remorse when they feel like they're in a position where they have to euthanize an animal due to whatever happened to that animal in the conditions that they're in. So you have all these stories about how these these farmers actually can connect to the animals, but then that connection has to be cut off in a way because they have to profit, right? So it's it's so sad. I, I remember at, at the aquaculture facility I investigated and on the last day of the um the time where I documented these these workers throwing fish across the way and throwing fish into tanks and uh, throwing them up in the air and letting them fall down to the concrete ground underneath us over and over and repeatedly, just doing the most you know horrible things to these animals. And then at the end of the workday, the farm manager turns to me and he says, "You know, it used it used to bum me out the way that we killed them because." Uh, they would just put the fish into empty buckets with no water inside of the buckets and then just let them suffocate to death. And he said, it's just, because they suffocate, it's really rough. But over the years, you kind of get desensitized. So the desensitization aspect of it is really prominent as well. And we have to look at all of these things when it comes to, you know, farmers in general and and how they interact with these animals and and how tied they are to the livelihoods. So Whenever a an alternative can be offered, that's wonderful for a lot of these individuals who might have these alternative points of view that differ from what the industry tries to drill into their minds, and they actually have a a way out, which is uh, something that a lot of farmers think that they don't have the ability to do anything else or even farm workers in some cases. So our farm transitions program, I think, as I said, is a step definitely in the right direction to offer an alternative to a lot of these individuals who might otherwise not do this type of thing if they had another another thing to do. And so instead of farming animals, farming plants, that's definitely something that has way less stressors, I think, for their mentality, their mental health, their physical health, and maybe even their financial health as well. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And I, I find it interesting in the consumer space and in the industry in that the, the, the norms and the desensitization and the, you know, uh, yeah, I guess the social norms are so powerful and insidious and extremely hard to break. So that, you know, I find frustrating and difficult to deal with. But at the same time, those norms are obscuring 
the fact that I think many people sort of, in at least in theory, agree with us already. So most consumers don't really like causing needless suffering and death to farmed animals. And many of the people involved in the industry don't really want to be there doing those things either. It's just the way things are. Or, um, and in both cases, that's why I think it's so powerful to then offer alternatives because it's easy to stand outside and moralize and say, you know, we don't care, shut it down. You're perpetrators, you deserve to be punished. Right? And sometimes, you know, that's the stereotype of a, the angry vegan on Twitter. And I am one sometimes, which is just understandably so horrified by this whole thing that we just want to condemn the entire enterprise. And I understand that and I feel it too. But in practical terms and also in compassionate terms, we need to have compassion for the people who are involved in these systems, indoctrinated to these systems. We should have compassion for them too, even as they cause harm. And in practical terms, we need to help them find alternatives. Um, and whether that's for consumers, you know, fortunately they have an alternative plant, but of course, you know, there's all sorts of innovation going into alternatives that get really close to the quality and the feel and the and the experience of animal products you know though that at least practically helps people find a path to behaving more in line with their maybe latent ethic anyway um, and i think the same is true of the transition programs in animal agriculture because you can actually provide a practical supported way of these communities and these businesses and these farmers and these employers shifting towards something that probably they'll be happier with anyway and the more we can help that happen, the better. And how hopeful do you feel that, because my sense of the transition programs at the moment, because Animal Outlook, you run one, there's Mercy for Animals, there's some work being done, stock-free stock work being done in Scotland and Sweden. So there's a few you know, different programs around the world. Um, I think Miyoko's Creamery do another as well. They feel at the moment very much like pilots. They're ex exploratory. The, uh, the Rancher Advocacy Program is another one as, as well, of course, RAP. But they feel very exploratory and pilots and we're learning and it's you know a few farms here and there. What's your sense about whether and how we can get those to scale? I think it, it will take a lot of time. And I think even though it will take time, we're definitely committed to continuing to, to put our efforts into it because any good thing might take a really long time to build up. And I think that's true of veganism. I think that's true of animal rights. And it's also going to be true for farm transitions, most likely. But it's something that has never really been offered before in this type of capacity. So it's, it's new, it's innovative, and it is 100% rooted in compassion on both sides of the aisle, right? It's not just for the animals, it's also for these human animals who are locked into these worlds that they want to break away from. So the fact that we are offering for, for them to be able to do that, I think for me personally, I completely identify with that because a lot of the farm workers that I interacted with shared a lot of the same culture that I do uh, had a lot of the same background that I do because I am a descendant of immigrants as well. And a lot of those farm workers will be um, immigrants as well and, and, and Hispanic um, identifying and, and having that Hispanic background. So yeah. that's, that's something that I was able to share the same language with these individuals. And I was able to ch talk with them, chat with them. And in some cases, they feel like they have no other alternatives. So the fact that there are, all, are alternatives out there that aren't exploitative as yeah. well. It's just showing 
the world that there is a better way, there's a better path forward. And it's just a matter of getting the messaging out there for one, which I think is is a little bit easier to do in, in the world that we live in today because a lot of things can you know go viral or, or be promoted on social media. And that's something that a lot of people do have access to. So there's that. And there's also just, it's, it is going to take some time. It is going to take time to sort of have people break away from that mindset. But we're, we're putting forth that idea and that concept that we want a, be- a better future and, and animal rights and veganism and the way that it sort of intersects with everything is evident. And, and we recognize that and we want a better future for all. And we include animals in that because they are one of the more exploited individuals in, in this world that we live in. But we do recognize that veganism and animal rights sort of touches upon a lot of these other different issues. And, and we're just trying to tackle that. And farm transitions is one of the ways that we try to do that. Yeah, completely. And you mentioned early on that one of the challenges put to you was this sense of, you know, why focus on the non-human animal issues? Because, you know, our communities have got so many of their own issues within our own species already. And as you hinted at there, I think there's a complementarity you know, we can we can we can work to transition these extremely harmful exploitative issues, and it, it'll be good for the humans too. I mean, is that your sense? How do how do you think of those intersections and the human ethical challenges and the non-human challenges set to, set together or against each other? Yeah, well, I think what I shared about my background sort of speaks to that, and the the way that I identify as an individual and then also, you know, my heritage, my culture and all of that just goes into that mindset that I have for wanting a better future for everyone. And for me, the most effective way to pursue that better world is through animal rights work because it is, in my opinion, an everything issue. It's like an everything bagel. It has, has everything on it. It's It can be an animal rights issue, a human rights issue, a workers' rights issue, human health issue, environmental issue. And that is a fact. And there are studies to prove it. And it's just something that, for me, it encompasses so much and it touches upon so many different issues that that is where I think I can be most effective towards being one of those individuals who tries to contribute to that better future. For people who come from the types of backgrounds that I came from, where I experienced a lot of suffering in my life, and I want to create a world where there are other individuals who don't have to go through that, whether they be human animals or non-human animals. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Um, And your work has been so central to uh, pushing that agenda forward. I I completely agree. It's just such an obvious, clear win-win-win. Um, and it's a deeply important lever, lever to pull. So, uh, yeah, thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to add into the conversation? It feels like we've answered what's real, what and who matters, and how to make a better future in an hour, 20 minutes. But is there anything else you'd like to add in that we haven't covered already? I think we've really had a really um, interesting and engaging conversation here, and I'm really glad that you had me on. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity to sort of touch upon these issues. I think the only thing left that I'd say is that for anyone who's interested in learning more about our farm transitions program, you can go to animaloutlook.org and we actually have all the information that you need um, on our on our website. And then we're also active on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, even TikTok, where um, we're under the, the handle Animal Outlook. 
That's great. My kids have banned me from doing sentientism TikTok, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I don't think they can handle the embarrassment. But that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, do you do much any social media personally yourself, or is it mostly you're sending people to Animal Outlook? I do. I'm actually um, active sort of on Twitter um, as I try to figure it out still. Yeah. Instagram, uh, just under my name, Aaron Wing, and Facebook as well. And I am very sort of like a master of none for all of those platforms. So don't expect too much if you're visiting any of those pages, but no, they're great. there and yeah. I'd be happy to interact with anyone. That's great. Thank you. Well, I'll include links in the show notes so people can click and follow your inspirational work. So um, yeah, thank you. Um, and that's my only closing thought, really. I think your work has been so groundbreaking and um, I couldn't do the work you've done. Uh, I think it's distinctive, so important and, and absolutely essential. And um, yeah, I wish you all the best on the farm transition work going forward. It's going to be uh, as important. So, yeah, it's been a real pleasure Thank to talk you. to you. Thank you for being a guest on Sentientist Conversations. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalise rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?